Alfred Don't Defund Supervised Consumption. This week, we're joined by Elaine Heshka, an assistant professor of public health at the U of A, to discuss opioids in Alberta. We'll clarify the public health crisis facing us, what's being done, not done, and what can be done to move forward. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 146, and we've got a meaty one today, so I'm not going to waste your time with preamble. Let's get to the rapid fire. City Council has offered their concession this week to user EDM Common Sense, who posted on the internet about, quote, city council spending on pet projects until our kids are broke, end quote. In a 13 nothing vote, the municipal government recognized that they had no rhetorical leg to stand on and were forced to concede after the user made the exceptional argument that, quote, if any of them ran a business, they would be able to cut the budget in half, maybe more. A disgraced resignation from Mayor Iverson is expected to come early next week. Maxime Bernier has boasted a large increase in the polls for the People's Party of Canada after a recent public poll had the distant-to-last-place party overtaking the NDP for a third-place position. The absolutely unheard-of increase comes after a TikTok rave trend has gone viral, also called the People's Party of Canada. The federal NDP is not worried, however, with their leader Jugmeet Singh commenting, with tears in his eyes, that it's okay, young people on TikTok don't vote anyway. Follow-up questions about the NDP's outreach efforts were met with uncontrollable sobbing. The bomb squad and fire department flanked Edmonton City Hall this week, but were dismissed after it was revealed that the explosions and flames coming from the second floor of City Hall were just Don Iveson's ambitions of ending homelessness going up in smoke. (laughs) So mean. It's very mean. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported, and this episode is brought to you by Yeg PodFest, presented by Edmonton Community Foundation in partnership with the Alberta Podcast Network and LitFest. Running October 1st through 3rd, Yeg PodFest will be held all online this year, so anyone can tune in and experience it. The event will include master classes with professional podcasters, panel discussions, feature interviews, and more. Some of APN's member shows will be there too, so join us for the virtual party from October 1st through 3rd. You can check out the full lineup and get tickets at yegpodfest.ca. That's yegpodfest.ca. The guest we have this episode, and we won't waste any time getting to her, is one we've been very excited and very eager to talk to because, well, she's quite the expert in her field and she's been doing tons of advocacy around and we'll get to what words we should use to this we call it the opioid addiction crisis in previous episodes of the podcast i think she'd have uh words to say about is that the best language to describe it but without any further ado let's introduce elaine heshka she's an assistant professor at the u of a school of public health and she's here to tell us all about opioids fentanyl the crisis we're having in alberta and really put some context into this problem we're having. So welcome to the show, Elaine. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So I think right off the bat, I alluded it in the opening. We've talked about this crisis in many ways, but there's a lot of people-first language that we endeavor to use. So how should we talk about opioids and how should we talk about people who use opioids? Sure. So um, off the start, and we can get into more detail later, but um, we like I typically refer to the situation we're in right now as an overdose epidemic or a drug po- poisoning epidemic. 
And when we talk about substance use, we recognize there's a spectrum of use. So many people who use drugs casually actually don't have an addiction or what we would classify as a substance use disorder. Um, so we talk about substance use and then we talk about substance use disorders. And a substance use disorder is essentially a medical condition that is diagnosed like other mental health conditions for people that are experiencing problems from their substance use. And when we talk about people that are struggling with substance use, we use person-first language. So instead of saying addict, we would say a person who has an addiction or a person living with substance use disorder. And instead of saying like drug user, we would say um, someone who uses drugs. Okay. And in the same vein, I think while we're on the topic of, of definitions, maybe you can uh, explain for us the other terms that we're often hearing about or reading about in the news. So what's an opioid, fentanyl, naloxone? How do these words relate to one another? What are, the, what are the key terms that we should know when we're talking about this subject? So opioids are a class of um, psychoactive substances or drugs, and they're central nervous system like depressants. And many of us have probably taken opioids in our life um, if we've had different medical procedures. So things like um, morphine, hydromorphone, like even T3s, you know, that have codeine in them. Those are all opioids, but there's also illegal opioids. Um, so that can be things like heroin, um, fentanyl, carfentanyl, and other what we call novel synthetic opioids, which are drugs that are produced illegally in like kind of clandestine labs and then sold on the illegal market. And so when we talk about the situation that Edmonton, Alberta is in right now, the core substance that is currently driving the huge increase in death that we've seen is these novel synthetic opioids that are being illegally produced. It's not pharmaceutical opioids. And when you talk about illegal production of these novel synthetic opioids, are those generally being produced sort of like in labs here? Or is this a shipment problem? What's the source of a lot of these opioids? Yeah, so a lot of those drugs and the precursor chemicals that are used to make those drugs are actually manufactured overseas, primarily in China, but also in other countries. And then they're um, imported or trafficked into Canada. And they're often at that point cut with other substances to kind of like bulk up the drugs. And that is really why they're so highly toxic, because that last stage of mixing like, you know, the active ingredient with cutting agents really makes it extremely unpredictable in terms of the dose. And so there's no consistency between batch like one substance versus another substance or the same substance that's sold. Even if you go to the same dealer, like there's no real consistency with the strength or the potency of what you're getting. And so even when people are very cautious, and most people are quite cautious and don't want to, you know, have a, an overdose or potentially die, um, it is extremely difficult to titrate your dose because you just do not know what you're getting. And the drugs that are being sold on the illegal market right now, these novel synthetic opioids are very highly toxic and very potent. So it's, it's extremely high risk for people who are using drugs right now, even people that aren't necessarily purchasing opioids or wanting to consume opioids, because um, we are seeing in some instances, actually other substances cross-contaminated or um, just uh, contaminated with with opioids. So like samples of methamphetamine, for example, have tested positive for fentanyl or uh, benzodiazepine pills that are sold illegally that they're actually clandestinely made to look like pharmaceutical um, benzos, which are another class of drugs, um, have been contaminated with fentanyl or other synthetic opioids. And so it's just extremely dangerous because nobody really knows what they're buying, what's in the, what they're taking and how strong it is. So I was going to ask you, when we say that people are dying from overdose, or we see the word, the term drug poisoning, 
if it means that they've taken too much of the drug, the strength is is too much, as you've said, or if there's something bad in the drugs. But it sounds a little bit like it could be both. Is that right? Yeah, in most cases, actually unintentional poisoning. So it's that somebody doesn't necessarily want to take too much or isn't trying to take more than they should. It's that they have no control over the dose. And so that's why we actually, I prefer to use the term more and more drug poisoning, because mm. given the option to take safer substances, people would choose those substances. They, everybody wants to be able to take something of a known potency that they can titrate their dose. And it's not to say that, you know, um, some people may like take more than they should in those circumstances. But the reality is the vast majority of people that are using illegal drugs right now don't know what they're taking and are not intending to take um, a volume of drugs that would result in an overdose. It's just that they can't titrate the dose because these drugs are just so unpredictable. Right. Okay. So one other term we should define maybe off the top that is in the news a lot is naloxone. And that mm-hmm. is the counter agent for an opioid poisoning. Is that right? Yes. Naloxone is a medication that's been around for decades and it essentially is um, injected or in some settings, there's also intranasal naloxone. And essentially what it does is it removes like the opioids off the receptors in your brain and reverses the opioid overdose. And so it is essentially like an EpiPen for an opioid overdose. A short-term one, right? It doesn't last as long as the opioids, but it's enough to get somebody to safety? Yeah, the, it, it depends on the severity of the overdose. If someone has ta- like consumed like quite a, a large amount of opioids, then um, you may need additional doses and like further follow-up, but um, it is highly effective for reversing overdoses. Let's go through the scope of the problem a little bit, because especially for our listeners, it can be very shocking, the scope and scale of this problem. About how many Edmontonians and Albertans are being affected by these drug poisonings annually? Yeah, so last year over 450 Edmontonians died of a uh, from a drug poisoning, and in the province we saw over 1,300 people die. And so those numbers are historically unprecedented. We've never seen anything um, as severe as the current situation. And so far in 2021, the numbers are looking really like things are not getting better, and so. Um, we're expecting to see a very high death toll by the end of this year as well. This was a crisis before the pandemic, but I get the sense that the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, I should say, has exacerbated the opioid crisis. Is that true? Yeah. So um, we really started to see an uptick in death starting in 2014, like I'm even kind of end of 2013, 2014, and then 2015, which is really when this um, situation escalated. And that's associated with a shift in the illegal market. Um, Prior to those years, the dominant opioids being sold in the illegal market in Alberta and in other settings across Canada uh, was heroin or um, diverted pharmaceutical grade opioids. So that's things like Oxycontin, morphine, Dilaudid, which were made in pharmaceutical labs by pharmaceutical companies, but then diverted for illegal sale. What ended up happening was around that time, there was in Alberta about 100 people a year dying from opioid overdose. You know, that was alarming. Obviously, we don't want anybody to die from opioid overdose. And so there was concerted policy action here and across the country to limit the availability of those pharmaceutical opioids by cracking down on prescribing, discouraging doctors from, you know, um, initiating people on those drugs and finding ways to kind of reduce the supply of those drugs in circulation. But in taking that policy action, there was very little done to sort of address the underlying demand for those drugs. And so what ended up happening was illegal drug sellers switched to selling 
different products. And so that's where we started to see them importing fentanyl and other novel synthetic opioids um, to basically fill the gap um, that had been left by pharmaceutical opioids in circulation and heroin. And even heroin kind of declined at that point. And we saw really fentanyl has taken over. And the reason for that is because fentanyl is quite potent. You know, they say it's like 100 times stronger than morphine. So basically, when you're importing or trafficking illegal drugs, you want a really potent product because it's a smaller volume. And so Mm -hmm. it's easier to avoid detection. And so really the cost, like kind of the return on investment from importing fentanyl is just like heads and tails above any of these other drugs. And so it's really just become the dominant drug on the illegal market. And there is no indication that that is going to change in the near future. And that is why now, instead of having about 100 Albertans dying a year from opioid overdose, we're seeing over 1,300. So the escalation has been dramatic since about 2014, 2015 to the point we're at now. Now, the pandemic, unfortunately, did make things a lot worse. And um, we really just saw like a pretty astronomical increase in deaths um, in 2020 compared to 2019. I think we had around 600 deaths in 2019. And now, uh, last year, we had over 1,300. So You talked a little bit about not doing much to address the demand for uh, opioids. When we're talking in terms of, you know, the illegal or black market, what drives the demand specifically for opioids and for fentanyl? I think back to back when marijuana was legal. You had people who were using it recreationally. You had people who were using it to address pain. You had cancer patients in some cases using it. What's the demand curve for these illegal opiates like fentanyl on the street? What's causing people to want to use these in general? Well, I mean, why do people take drink alcohol or why, like, why do they consume cannabis or why do they take, um, like, or use cocaine? You know, there's a whole host of reasons that people or humans consume psychoactive substances. And the reality is that psychoactive substance use has been with us for millennia, you know, and it's just kind of part of innate human drives. And so I think it's probably unrealistic to expect that we would eliminate um, the use of psychoactive substances. And we have many legal psychoactive substances that people consume regularly. So it is the same as, you know, many people take drugs casually, just as someone might have a glass of wine at the end of a hard day or purchase cannabis and consume that cannabis, you know, on the weekend. Um, many people use illegal substances in the same manner. Others have developed um, like substance use disorders. So, you know, they may actually not want to use substances anymore, but um, they are having extreme difficulties stopping their use. Um, you know, others are actually untreated, are patients that are not able to get adequate pain treatment. Um, certainly there's a subset of people that are using illegal substances to treat both untreated physical and mental pain. But there's, you know, a diversity of reasons that people take psychoactive substances. And we have had, you know, many psychoactive substances around for use for millennia. You talked a little bit about how this is getting worse during the COVID-19 pandemic. And we're recording on September 1st. And just today, Kenny uh, returned from his vacation, did a Facebook Live, and he repeated the line that he said previously before that CERB was, quote, a cash injection for those trapped by addiction. And that's what's causing the problem here. Is there any merit to that claim? No. I, like, I'm sorry. <laughs> like, I, you know, I, you know, we actually had an op-ed about this in the Edmonton Journal back in December in 2020. Uh, it's a, that is, personally, in my opinion, a scapegoat for an escalating drug, drug poisoning crisis. And so if you look across Canada, 
and even in the U.S., uh, overdoses have gone up over, you know, during the pandemic. And what's believed to be driving that increase is primarily changes in the illegal market. So as we saw borders close and travel restricted, we saw traditional drug trafficking routes disrupted and sellers scrambling in the pandemic period to find new ways to get their products, to find new products that to replace ones they could no longer get, and then to continue to meet the demand for substances during the pandemic. And so that basically took an already volatile illegal drug market and made it even more volatile. And we're seeing, you know, um, evidence from uh, postmortem toxicology in BC, for example, they finding higher concentration of fentanyl in um, people who have died, like bloodstream. We're seeing drug checking from across the country, showing um, samples with increase with different drugs um, and novel, new novel drugs that haven't been circulating before, like other kinds of um, novel synthetic opioids being picked up in drug checking and in seizure data from the um, Health Canada's drug analysis lab. We're also seeing, for example, recently a rash of like benzodiazepine contamination of opioid products. So not just fentanyl, but powders like contaminated with both fentanyl and then also these clandestinely produced illegal benzodiazepine drugs, which are, you know, benzodiazepines are like Valium or like other sedatives, um, but these are not pharmaceutical grade. And so when somebody takes a benzodiazepine and opioid, that also increases the risk for overdose because they're both sedatives or like central nervous system depressants. And so basically the drug market has gotten extremely volatile during the pandemic. And as a result, um, we've seen an increase in overdose deaths or drug poisoning. At the same time, too, we've seen restricted access to services that are life-saving. You know, at the start of the pandemic, there was a dip in people accessing naloxone kits, as we talked about. Um, there was also a huge reduction in the number of people across Alberta that were accessing supervised exception services. And that was a sustained reduction because, you know, people who use drugs, just like the rest of us, were um, wanting to be more cautious, not wanting to go up to public facilities um, where they might um, contract COVID. You know, many people were uh, also staying home more and that meant that they were also using a loan. And, you know, if you're using a loan and you um, run into problems, there's nobody there to administer an naloxone kit for you or to call 911. And so really it's those factors that have been driving the increase in overdose. And, you know, frankly, CERB ended many, 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 many months ago now. And, you know, at the end of July was the worst week on record for EMS calls for overdose in the province. So to try to say that CERB is driving this is, I think, a misplace. And it's frankly, to me, a scapegoat for this highly volatile. The fact that the government is doing very little to address a highly volatile illegal drug market. You said over 1,300 Albertans uh, last year, and I wanted to come back to that just quickly in the context of addressing that. Is this crisis being felt more in some communities in the province than others? Like, for example, is this more of an urban problem than a rural one? Or is it mainly in Indigenous communities? Are, are there specific Albertans that are affected more than others? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure there are. When we talk about opioid-related um, poisonings in particular, we know that men are primarily impacted in Alberta, and it tends to be men in the age range of t- like 20 to 40 that are most negatively impacted in terms of deaths. If we look at uh, their demographics, it's very clear that First Nations people who reside in Alberta are very disproportionately impacted by overdose. And actually, the provincial government quietly released a report a couple months ago now, I believe, or maybe it was last month, where they looked at the first six months of 2020. And the death rate for non-First Nations people in Alberta in the first six months of 2020, so that's per 100,000 people, was 15.3. 
if you look at the death rate for First Nations people who are living in Alberta, it was 111.9 per 100,000. Wow. Just astronomically greater, really, compare, you know, comparatively. And so I think that's actually one of the least, the most underappreciated parts of this crisis is how badly First Nations uh, populations that live in Alberta are impacted and how little attention that's getting and how little policy action we're seeing to address it. Um, I find it extremely disturbing. Do you know with that um, First Nation impact, is this typically impacting First Nations living on reserve where perhaps services aren't as broadly available? Or is it our urban indigenous population that tends to be feeling the brunt or both? I think it's both. Like um, the, the government statistics don't disaggregate according to like more rural or urban settings. But I would say if you talk to people that work in this area, that they are seeing this certainly on reserve, um, particularly in southern Alberta. Um, and also, yeah, obviously, um, amongst ur- uh, urban populations as well. And I just want to point out, too, that that gap has really widened during the pandemic. So we've always had First Nations people like three to five times more likely to die of overdose um, in Alberta. So it was like 69.5 per 100,000 in 2019. And now like it's gone to 111.9. So, you know, it's extremely acute right now and we're seeing almost no attention to it. So let's talk a little bit about that attention, because we mentioned a couple offhand solutions, quote unquote, to the problem, supervised consumption sites being one example. But if we're through policy or practice going to address this issue, what are the steps we need to be taking both provincially and what can the city of Edmonton do to, about this health issue? Well, and and just related to that, like, is this a problem that we know the solution to and we just have to do it? Or are we still trying to figure that out? That's a, Those are great questions. So, um, I think the first thing we need to do is recognize the situation. And I've tried to make it as clear as possible. This is not a crisis of addiction that needs to be treated with residential treatment beds or addiction treatment programs. 100% in our society, we have issues with substance use disorders. People who have that diagnosis need to have access to a full spectrum of care, including you know all the evidence-based treatment options. What we're seeing in Alberta and across the country is not necessarily that the rates of addiction have dramatically skyrocketed, and that is why so many people are overdosing and dying. What we're seeing is the supply has become more toxic, the drug supply has become more toxic, and that is really what's driving this. And so the prevalence of substance use disorders has generally been fairly stable over the last several years, but we've seen the death rate significantly increase. And so to address the death rate and to reduce deaths, we really need to do the short-term measures that we know that work to prevent people from dying from toxic drugs, as opposed to focusing solely on enhancing the addiction treatment system, which again, I applaud. I think we should enhance the addiction treatment system, but that is not the solution to the situation we're in. Are we talking things like safe supply? Do we want to be producing safe known quantities of these drugs to be used by the population? Yeah, so we have a whole bunch of interventions that we know are working or that work. And so um, the first, like in the kind of the frontline thing that works is what we call opioid agonist treatment, which is, you know, a pretty technical term for drugs like um, Suboxone or Methadone, which people take as a way to achieve abstinence from illegal drugs. We also have an abundance of evidence that shows if you prescribe people injectable hydromorphone or injectable diacetylmorphine, which is heroin, that people tend to be able to stabilize their substance use. They get healthier, they get housing, or if they, you know, get stable income, they get employment, and they reduce their involvement in crime. That's a key piece of this for sure, is ensuring that people have the option to access those gold standard treatments, you know, on demand, like as soon as they want them. 
that being said, we also know that many people who use substances are not ready or able or willing to access treatment. And those people or that subpopulation of people who are using drugs are extremely high risk for overdose. And so we need to be able to prevent deaths amongst that population until people are, you know, if they need treatment, until they're able to get it or until they're willing to access it. And, you know, like substance use disorders, just like any other health condition, it takes time to address them. And so things that kind of help reduce harm in the short term are supervised consumption services where people take their drugs that they pre-obtain, so street drugs, and use under medical supervision. And then if they have an overdose, they get emergency medical care right on site. And they're also able to connect to a whole host of other health services while they're there. Uh, naloxone kits are another option for people that don't want to go to supervised consumption services that are using at home or using in other settings. And safe supply would be kind of falling in that class too. We recognize that not everyone wants to go to a structured treatment program, but if they had an option to access a pharmaceutical grade alternative to a toxic illegal street drug, that that would significantly reduce their risk of death. And so there are a number of safe supply pilot programs that have been implemented across the country to basically see, you know, is this an effective way to respond to the overdose epidemic? And so far, like preliminary results have been quite promising. And so th that's the idea that people shouldn't have to go to an illegal drug seller to purchase a highly toxic product if they're dependent on drugs and that they should be able to purchase or, or access a pharmaceutical grade alternative of known potency and that that would significantly reduce their risk of death. August 31st was International Overdose Awareness Day and we saw Mayor Iveson here in Edmonton holding up his naloxone kit. Are there other things that the city of Edmonton can do? Some of the things you've just described sound like jurisdictions out beyond a municipality, but what could a municipality like Edmonton do to help address this crisis? Well, there's actually quite a, a, a lot <laughs> that the city can do. Yeah. So I think that it's actually really important to acknowledge that efforts to end homelessness and address housing instability are really important for fighting drug poisoning and overdose death, because we know that substance use disorders and substance use are concentrated amongst more socioeconomically marginalized populations. And so if you can help people to achieve um, housing stability and income support, that, that will go a long way in helping to reduce their overdose death risk. And so I'm always applauding the city when it's pushing to get funding for permanent supportive housing and other kind of housing initiatives, because that is, you know, these are all, these social problems are all tied together. Um, you can't really fix one in the absence of kind of addressing all of them. And so I think that is a key piece. Beyond that, we've seen cities, including Toronto and Vancouver, and I believe Montreal is also moving in this direction, ask the federal government to decriminalize drug possession with their jurisdiction. And that is actually a very key policy action as well, because we know from decades of research that criminalizing people who are using illegal drugs is counterproductive in terms of discouraging them from seeking help. And so many people who use drugs avoid calling 911 if they have an overdose or if someone they're with has an overdose because they're petrified that the police will attend and the police often do attend those calls and um, that they'll be arrested on outstanding warrants or that they'll be um, their drugs will be confiscated or that they'll be um, otherwise charged. And we do have, in theory, um, legislation federally that is supposed to offer some protection, but it's insufficient because it's very narrow. In many cases, there are other charges that can be laid against people that are not part of that legislation. So if we could decriminalize drug possession and really, you know, put our money where our mouth is when we say that this is a health issue and not a criminal justice issue, that also would be go a long way for encouraging people to be more open about their substance use. And if they're struggling to seek care, particularly before 
their use potentially spirals and they run into you know a lot of problems. And so that's something Edmonton can, could definitely do as well. I think too, um, in the absence of leadership from other orders of government, the city could support piloting safe supply interventions here. There are many cities across Canada that are home to these pilot projects and Health Canada has been funding tens of millions of dollars to support these initiatives. None of that funding has come to Alberta. And in fact, the provincial government has declined that funding from the federal government. Which isn't at all surprising, (laughs) but disappointing. So I think that's part of it for sure. And then I think too, I would say the city has work around raising awareness of the issue. And in particular, they've been turning their attention more and more to neighborhood associations, particularly in areas of the city where we do see a higher prevalence of overdose. And they've been supporting communities to learn more about naloxone, learn more about how to recognize signs of overdose, learn more about how to talk to somebody in your life that may be struggling with substance use. And I think that is also um, really positive because, you know, this is a whole of society problem and we need whole of society solutions. And so to get everybody kind of engaged in talking about it is still very key. So on that point, that's an intervention that sort of the public can take. Should everyone just be carrying a naloxone kit in their daily life? That's a great question. I think that if you are somebody that lives or works in an area where um, you've you know previously seen sort of evidence of substance use or are likely to encounter someone that may be using substances, then you definitely should carry an awesome kit. So for example, um, me, <laughs> I live downtown. I've, I've seen this frequently, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah and I live um, South Central and it's the same thing. Uh, so I have a naloxone kit. I also work at my main offices is not on campus. It's in, in the central Edmonton. And so I carry kit for that purpose too. And obviously the nature of the work I do <laughs> leads me to places where people are using substances because you do a lot of research with people who use drugs. So I certainly carry one. There's a list on Alberta Health Services website. If you just Google AHS naloxone, that will show you what pharmacies carry naloxone kits and they can be picked up by members of the public. You don't have to give your name or your PHN. Uh, You just go to the pharmacy, you ask for a kit. And if you don't know how to use it, they'll show you how to use it. There are like over a thousand pharmacies across the province that carry those kits. I'd say like many, many carry them now. If that's something that you think um, would be good to have on you, then I would certainly encourage you to go and access a kit. You walk around downtown and, you know, you see people who are houseless or less fortunate or whatever on the street, not, you know, people on drugs, but, you know, people that, uh, you know, aren't wearing a suit or whatever. And people do not even give them the time of day. They won't say hi. They won't acknowledge them. They try to shuffle past them as quickly as possible. How can we seriously ask those folks to get a naloxone kit and then inject someone in the thigh or the shoulder with a needle. Like, I guess it's about stigma is my, is my question and, and, uh, and, and wanting to, to do the right thing. How do we get people over that? You know, it can be uncomfortable if you see somebody passed out and you're thinking, I'm not sure what to do here, but the reality is like you may be before someone, you know, who's taking their last breaths. And so you do have an opportunity to intervene and potentially save, like save a life. And we've seen stories in the last few months of very brave Edmontonians, like a 14 year old boy downtown who happened to carry a naloxone kit because of the area of the city that he lived in. And he felt it was his responsibility to have it with him, you know, save someone's life. Like the reality is if you're approaching someone because you're concerned about their welfare and you approach them, you know, and, and check on them, like the vast majority of people are going to be very thankful that you did that, you know? And so I right. just say like people who use drugs are just like us. I've done, you know, tons of interviews with people who use drugs. Everybody comes to drug use for different reasons. Um, People have all kinds of different backgrounds. We're really all the same people. There's no, it's an artificial divide, like a social construct that, you know, we've somehow 
people use drugs that they're not like everyone else. Right. And so I would say like, yeah, for me, I couldn't live with myself if I had an opportunity to intervene with somebody that was potentially, you know, about to die. And I didn't take it because I was thought they were different or was uh, afraid. And so I think that that helps get past that stigma. If you recognize like, you know, this is a health crisis and people are dying and you as an individual citizen have an opportunity. And, you know, if you don't feel comfortable carrying a lock zone or you don't want to inject somebody with a kit, check on that person and call 911. That can yeah. make a huge difference too, right? So just looking out for fellow Edmontonians. We can't just let these people die. Like, you know, I don't know how to say that more clearly. And I guess because I'm in public health, you know, that's central on my mind. But this more people died from drug poisoning in Alberta last year than from COVID-19. Like right. it's not acceptable and we have to stop it. And so everyone has to do their part, I think, to to support the solutions. I will add for the listener that might have had that questioning eyebrow. That's not us belittling the COVID-19 pandemic or the seriousness of it. That's to make it very clear how serious this opioid problem is. Yeah. And I think it drives home the stigma too, because we've mobilized the whole, all of society against COVID-19 to try to address it. You know, we have daily, we had daily briefings from our chief medical officer of health. We have daily statistics on number of deaths, um, number of new cases. We don't have any of that for the drug poisoning crisis. And, you know, I think that really does speak to the stigma around it because the scale of mortality is, you know, on par. And certainly it's so bad that it's affecting life expectancy in Canada. And yet we just don't even see the same, even, you know, a tiny percentage of the amount of attention that um, the pandemic is getting. And obviously I'm from public health. I fully support focus on COVID-19, I think we've done a lot and I think we should do more to address it. But, um, you know, this is a very severe crisis too. Now that we're giving people some tools, I think it's good to give some takeaways. Let's assume the listener doesn't feel comfortable carrying a naloxone kit and they just want to be able to call 911. What does an overdose look like? Like what should people on the street be looking out for, for individuals who may be experiencing an overdose? Well, obviously, you know, it looks like not breathing. So <laughs> Uh, like when somebody has an opioid poisoning, their central nervous system is depressed and eventually they, they stop breathing. And so like slowed breathing, people who are unresponsive, like can't be woken with like loud stimuli or like a good shake on, you know, on the shoulder is another sign. Um, blue lips or uh, fingertips is sometimes present, loud snoring. There's a lot of different signs, but those are some of the key ones. And if you were to get an naloxone kit, the training includes a list of all these things to look for. You know, the good thing about naloxone too is, let's say you weren't 100% sure there was an opioid overdose, and it'd be hard to know because, you know, unless there was, you know, drugs in the, on the scene or some like drug use equipment on the scene, it'd be hard to know for sure. But naloxone is inert in people that aren't using opioids. So you actually can't hurt someone by injecting them with naloxone. And so it's actually very safe to intervene. I hear fear-mongering on Reddit about, I don't want to carry an naloxone kit because if I give someone an injection, they're going to sue me. That's not a real concern, right? Not in Canada, no. So, um, you know, most courts have recognized like when a good Samaritan is intervening, you know, in a, like, in a good faith way in a medical emergency, um, the like personal liability is generally quite limited for that. Like it's just, there hasn't really been a situation where someone who's been just like a, a good Samaritan or layperson, you know, stopped to help someone uh, and was then like personally liable. Also, like I said, it is extremely safe actually <laughs> to, um, you know, inject naloxone, which is why we have these take-home naloxone programs across the country. Like, because certainly the benefit of intervening dramatically outweighs any potential risk um, associated with it. And also I would say too that um, the provincial government has actually funded 
a small program to distribute nasaloxone. So that's uh, a formulation that can be squirted up your nose, basically, instead of uh, given through an intramuscular injection. And um, so if you're really squeamish, but you did feel like you're a person that is um, likely to encounter someone who's overdosing, you can get an intranasal kit and um, the George Spady Center in Edmonton is distributing those kits. You had mentioned earlier on in the show that this doesn't seem to be a problem that's getting better. We've seen July be our worst month on record. Is there anything that should give us hope looking forward? Is there a way out of this crisis? Do you see a path to getting better? Well, we were actually getting better before the pandemic started. So we, if you look at the numbers from the last part of 2019 and the first quarter of 2020, we actually did see a dip in the death rate. And I, I would attribute that to two things. I think the first thing is that between 2017 and 2019, the provincial government funded the expansion of a whole host of interventions directly designed to reduce overdose deaths. And so that was the scale up of the naloxone program. Um, that was the funding of supervised consumption services in Edmonton, Calgary, Lethbridge, Grand Prairie, and Red Deer. That was the expansion of opioid agonist treatment. That was the creation of injectable opioid agonist treatment clinics in Edmonton and Calgary. All those things, I think, did contribute to reduction in the mortality rate. I think also the illegal drug market um, stabilized a little bit at, in that time period. And I think that um, there may have been less carfentanil and other like very, very toxic, highly potent synthetic opioids in circulation that were also attributing to a reduction in deaths. Unfortunately, we are now seeing, um, again, that the illegal drug market has gotten a lot more volatile. And we're also seeing that there's a clawback of some of those really effective programs for preventing overdose deaths happening in our province. And so that actually, unfortunately, doesn't give me hope. <laughs> if we were to see a reversal of that trend and to see more money funded and to see the expansion of some of those services like supervised services, um, like expansion of injectable opioid agonist treatment, and also our willingness to try new things like safe supply, I do think that that would lead to reductions in mortality. So, I mean, I'm hopeful in the sense that we know what the solutions are and we know what needs to happen. But right now we aren't seeing those solutions being executed. Uh, and that is, I think, you know, obviously very disheartening to everyone that works in this area. You've given us a lot of really fantastic information, really helped us understand this better. If the listener were to take one key thing away, what would you want to leave them with? Like my training and my passion in life is to prevent harm in our society from substance use, you know, and to help people that are struggling with substance use disorders and addiction to get well and to um, live the lives that they want to live. And I would say that as much as I like commend, you know, seeing expansion of addiction treatment or substance use treatment programs in the province, every time like the government, any government, whether it be at the federal level or the provincial level says the way to fix this issue is to fund treatment is demonstrating that they fundamentally misunderstand the situation. Mm -hmm. And that the reality is people are dying long before they have an option to um, seek those treatment programs. And you cannot recover from a substance use disorder if you don't have like a pulse, you know, if you're dead. And right. so really the, the key here is to continue to expand treatment options, give everybody the options that they need that will help them if they are struggling with substance use. But if we just do that and we don't put in place these measures that will save lives, like pharmaceutical alternatives to drugs, like supervised consumption sites, like naloxone, like um, injectable opioid agonist treatment, all these other programs. If we don't do those things, we're never going to get out of the situation. And the reality is 
the legal drug market is contaminated and it's not going to change. And until we're willing to accept that and recognize that as a society and find solutions to undermine that illegal market and get people out of it, we're just going to continue to see so many, uh, you know, young people, people of all ages dying in uh, the province. And yeah, I guess that's the main thing. Until we can accept that and work with that reality, we're not going to make the progress we want. So while we're on the realm of hard questions, Mac and I were discussing briefly before the show, and we had a bit of a thought experiment disagreement because opioids in general, like, you know, your T3s that you get at the dentist to get wisdom teeth removed, those are, you know, derived from opiates. Mm-hmm. Were opiates a good idea overall? Have the benefits of opiates over history outweighed the massive public health crisis we're undergoing right now? If you could go back and rewrite history, would you just remove the discovery of opiates? No. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. I, I think that all drugs, whether they're legal or illegal, have benefits and harms. I think it's not the substance themselves, but the way we regulate it that has made it so um, dangerous. And, you know, we see that there's many legitimate purposes for opioids and uh, certainly a whole host of healthcare interventions are dependent on opioids, you know, for anesthesia and other um, functions and, you know, pain management. And we actually see like vast inequities and access to opioids across countries, particularly, you know, other regions of the world that have very little access to pain treatment and that that really undermines, you know, their health system and the medical interventions they can provide. So I would not say that I would ever want to go and unwrite history and get rid of opioids. What I'd want to unwrite is the way that we have essentially, we've drawn artificial distinction between sort of what some legal opioids and what are some, you know, illegal opioids. So like the 1908, like Opium Act. What's happened under prohibition is there is a highly unregulated, highly dangerous market. And the incentives for that market are to make drugs more toxic and more potent. That is how we've ended up in the situation we are now, because the return on investment is higher when you can bring in a more potent product that then you can cut up and distribute to more people. And that's not being undone. And so, you know, I think we could be much smarter about how we regulate opioids. And, you know, criminal prohibition, in my opinion, of opioids has been a failure. And, you know, if we look at how many people are dying, it's extremely difficult to argue that it's been any kind of success. And I think we just need to really be as a a society, be open to rethinking our approach here, recognizing that criminalization has contributed massive harm and figuring out a way that we can be more responsible in how we regulate opioids, where we still provide access for legitimate purposes like medical use, where people who are are wanting to use opioids for other purposes have access to safer opioid products, and where we undercut and undermine and get rid of these highly toxic and dangerous drugs. And there are bodies internationally talking about how to do that. The Global Commission on Drug Policy is one that is talking about alternative regulatory regimes for these drugs. The Canadian Drug Policy Coalition here in Canada is doing the same thing. And I think that, you know, ultimately we are going to have to change those policies if we want to like basically go back in time and undo a lot of the harm that we're seeing now. So this last question feels a little bit like whiplash because of the weight of what we've been talking about, but every Edmontonian guest has to get it. And that's, what do you think of the Talus Dome? Oh. <laughs> do, you, do you think it's a great piece of public art in a perfect spot? Do you hate it? What are your thoughts there? Well, I'm reluctant to comment on such a polarizing issue because I don't want my opinion <laughs> on the Talus Dome to um, undermine my positions on another polarizing issue, substance use. <laughs> but I personally, you know, I run um, in the River Valley where I used to do a lot more and I liked running by it. I always kind of found it, you know, and a nice entertaining thing along the route. And so I have no problems with it. I think it's, I think it's nice. Maybe 
could have been placed better, but I think it is an attractive installation. Well, thank you so much. Uh, it's always a massive pleasure to have someone with your level of expertise come on and talk to us. And, you know, we had a series of questions, but you'll drop a nugget of knowledge and we, we just had to follow it down the rabbit hole. And it was a pleasure having you on. So thank you so much for joining us, Elaine. Thank you. And if I could just pitch one little thing at the end of this, um, we didn't get a chance to talk a lot about supervised consumption sites, but those will be in the news quite a bit in the next few months because there is um, some changes happening at the provincial level and there's a litigation against those changes. And so I'd encourage anyone that wants to learn more about supervised consumption services um, and the evidence behind them to go to yscs.ca. Uh, and check out our new website we just launched yesterday that really um, unpacks a lot of the scientific research around this, those sites. We'll absolutely put a link to that in the show notes so everyone can follow through, click the link and discover that. Is there anything else? You, we normally give our guests a <laughs> section for plugs. Anything you want to plug? Do you want to just pass your Twitter feed off? This is your space. Anything last you want to say to the listeners, direct them to? I just say thanks for listening to this episode and thank you for caring about this issue. Don't know how to end this episode, but here's an ad. Today's episode is brought to you by Bessie Box, delivering healthy, naturally raised meat and seafood right to your door. Bessie is a small team in Alberta that delivers local food straight from the farm to you. Choose from Alberta grass-fed and finished ground beef to sustainable Atlantic salmon from BC. You can order on your schedule, whether it's a one-time order or a regular subscription to your favorite Bessie Box. All conveniently flash-frozen and portioned, so you always have healthy meat and seafood ready to cook up a storm. Go to BessieBox.com to order yours now. And APN listeners can use the promotion code APN10 to save 10% off your first order. That's code APN10. Entered on checkout at BessieBox.com to save 10% off your first order. Until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. I'm Elaine. And we're Speaking, Speaking in Municipal. Municipal.